Hello, and welcome to episode 32. As always, thank you for hitting that play or download button to have a listen to all things movie-related, past, present, and future. Every week we look at a movie, a lot of times more than one if there's a connection that links them. Some of them hailed as among the best of the best, some of them that did fine at the box office, some that may be pretty much forgotten, and some that may have flown under the radar when they first came out and deserve a revisit. And if you happen to be unfamiliar with any movie that this show takes a closer look at, especially those that may have been around for a while and seem dated, just remember what actress Lauren Bacall once said, it's not an old movie if you haven't seen it. I'm your movie-loving host, Frank, and this is Silver Screeners. Alright, to begin today's episode, let's take a look at the time of year it is. It's November as of this recording, so in the film industry, that means, among other things, it's time to roll out the quote-unquote Oscar hopefuls. We'll be talking about all of the annual awards throughout this upcoming award season, of course, but the kickoff is today because there is one upcoming release that's particularly intriguing for a number of reasons. It's possible that we're going to be seeing two luminaries, both multiple Oscar winners already, finding themselves shortlisted once again. The incomparable Denzel Washington starring opposite last year's Best Leading Actress champ Frances McDormand in The Tragedy of Macbeth. The classic Shakespearean bloodfest that's rife with political intrigue, betrayal, bloodletting, greed for power, a screwy marriage, three witches, as well as the goddess of witchcraft herself. And it stars the incomparable Denzel Washington as the indecisive-turned-ruthless-title character who slashes and slays his way to the top of the political food chain in order to become the King of Scotland. Frances McDormand plays his wife, the ingeniously named Lady Macbeth, who is, according to the character Malcolm, quote, fiend-like, end quote. But for me, what catapults this film into the upper echelon of new releases, slated for mass consumption over the next month or two, is the fact that it is directed by none other than multi-Oscar-winning screenwriter, producer, and director Joel Cohen, who, as it turns out, has been married to frequent collaborator Frances McDormand since 1984. What makes the tragedy of Macbeth different from anything they've ever done together before is that for the first time, Joel Cohen is flying solo. Up till now, he's always co-written, co-produced, and co-directed with his brother Ethan, who decided to sideline himself this time around to focus on stage work and other projects. So in today's show, we're celebrating the careers of the Cohen brothers, two American filmmakers from the Midwest. They have won Best Screenplay, Picture, and Director for 2007's No Country for Old Men, as well as Best Screenplay for 1996's Fargo. And, of course, they've gotten a slew of other nominations throughout their careers as well. So to get pumped for the tragedy of Macbeth, I'm pumped because joining me today on Silver Screeners, doing it the Cohen way, I guess you could say, not one guest, but a pair of them, we got Stu and we got Al. Two podcasters over in the UK. Together they co-host the Stu and Al pod, which I've mentioned here on this show before. Together they deliver the comedy goods. They've got great chemistry. They've been friends since they were kids together. Their show's been going strong now for a year and a half, I think it is. I first came across their show last December. Today we're going to serve up, each of us, our two favorite Coen Brothers films. We'll give you the basic premise, the plot setups, and we're also going to try to stump each other in trivia questions on each other's picks, before heading into the usual poll and trivia results from last episode. But, I'd rather talk with them than about them, so let me bring them on and get things going. Stu, Al, thank you guys for coming today. Welcome to the show. Hey. Hello. <laughs> now, Frank, we, when we when we always mention you on our show, we always do a little thing first. So, if you just bear with us a second. Frank Gay. I've said it before. I'll say it again. I've had nicknames in my time, but I have never had my own theme tune until you guys came around. Oh, that's great. Hey, before we go any further, everybody listening needs to know Stu is the one who came up with the title for today's episode, The Cohen Chronicles. Credit needs to go where it's due. Stu, great suggestion. I'm a sucker for the alliteration, so it works. Frank, I can't remember how much we said you'd pay me for that, but um, we'll, we'll work that out later on anyway, that's fine. Yeah, first couple of rounds on me when you come to the States. I'll do. <laughs> And one last thing before we get going with the Coens, I want to be sure that you both have the chance to say something about yourselves, the Stu and Al pod. So yield the floor to you and anything you want to say about it, your contact info. I usually do this, but don't you all go on. Uh, so we're a comedy podcast. We're based in the UK, uh, England. Uh, England. England, yeah. England. Um, we, you can find us on Twitter. We're at Stu and Al pod. Um, you can find our podcasts, the Stu and Al pod, wherever you get your podcasts, really. Um, yeah. iTunes, Amazon, Spotify, Spotify, Good Pods, Good Pod, Pod Chaser, anywhere really. Google, um, yeah, we always have a bit of a laugh, don't we, Steve? 
Well, yeah, <laughs> usually. Uh, we My do silly expense. voices and stories and crap jokes. Yeah, it can oh. get quite blue. Bit of blue. It can yeah. get quite blue. But uh, yeah, we have fun with it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I've been listening for months. Like I said, a lot of fun. Yeah, so the three of us, we have decided to collaborate on today's episode and to bring everybody our personal favorite Coen Brothers films. We each selected two, and of course, as is the case with any best of lists, you can have 20 films for number three, but we limited it to two. So we're each going to be talking about the basic plot setup. We'll stump each other with trivia questions, like I said. Either one of you want to get things going? Go first. Go on, Stu, you go first. Yeah, go on, So I've gone with my... Yeah, I'd say it's my favourite first. Uh, I've gone for the Hoodsucker Proxy. You know, for kids. Bit of line for the film there. Yeah, I've not seen it. Oh. <laughs> no? No. no. You haven't seen he, it. He no, hasn't. I haven't seen it. I definitely have. Yeah. <laughs> have, you, have you seen it, Frank? Yeah, yeah, I've seen it. <laughs> uh, oh, well, I wish you were. I'm really sorry. Yeah, I... I, I... When I looked at when you said about you've got this one, I thought I, I've not seen that one. I feel bad for the it. Thing is, it's hard to track it down anyway because it's not on anything streaming wise, and I don't think they ever released it on Blu-ray either. So I, I had like a DVD copy from years and years ago, but that's like the only version I have. It's been a while since I've seen it as well. But I don't think you find many Coen Brothers films on the streaming sites though. A lot of the ones no. I was looking at, I couldn't find them on a lot of streaming sites. So yeah. So yeah, like our Netflix over here, I think it's got like the big Lebowski raising Arizona. Mm. And then I think Miller's Crossing's on Disney Plus. Miller's Crossing is on Disney Plus. Yeah, I know. <laughs> we have some weird films on our Disney Plus over here. Because something called Star, which I don't know if it's like your Hulu bit on there or not. There's like a lot of adult stuff on that part. When they released Star on Disney Plus over here, you had to have a password for your account. Mm. Or they wouldn't let you access that part of the uh, the channel. So you can watch uh, Mickey Mouse and then an episode of Desperate Housewives afterwards. <laughs> hey, who doesn't? <laughs> oh, yeah. But um, yeah, Hudson, anyway. So it's the story of a naive business graduate who is installed as a president of a manufacturing company as part of a scam to get the, uh, the shareholders rich. But obviously, it all doesn't go to plan. As is the same with any Coen Brothers movie, really. So, yeah, I, I mean, it wasn't the first Coen Brothers I ever saw. I think the first one I ever saw was Fargo, which yeah. got me into like, well, what else have you made? Uh, Big Lebowski after that. And then I kind of went back and seen what they did before. So I came across this one. I think it was when I was at uni. Uh, one of the people I was living with there told me about it. And then I watched it from that and loved it. And then it's been like my favorite ever since from there, really. So it's, I don't know what it is about it. Like, probably the innocence of Norville is like such a kind of idiot, isn't he? But there's a scene where he's looking for all these like jobs that he could do where he's, I think, what is it? I read these down somewhere. One sec. He's looking in the, uh, in the, the list of jobs and he realizes he's underqualified for a cat's meat man, goaltender. Goat herder, gutter sweeper, and uh, rope braider. And then I can't remember what makes him good for the job at the Hudsucker Industries. I think he starts in the mail room, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. And then they like, we need an idiot in charge to um to like make them rich because they're trying to cover all their losses from when something happens that I won't say yet. <laughs> but then they find this like idiot in the mail room and make him president, and then it goes from there. Uh, you should definitely watch it, Al, really. Oh, that will do. Yeah, let me the DVD. If I can find it, yeah. <laughs> so I've got some, like, facts about the film. Joel, Joel Silver wanted Tom Cruise to play the part of Norville Barnes, um, but the clients were like, we want Tim Robbins, or we're not doing it, kind of thing. Um, Clint Eastwood was offered the role of Sidney Musburger, which eventually went to Paul Newman. See, I think Clint said to Paul Newman... Because he was a bit funny about doing it because he'd never really done a comedy film before. But they, they wanted him in and they said, like, you just cast anyone else because I'm going to be busy for a while. But apparently they waited like 10 years for him to be free. And then when he was available, they're like, right, you can do it now. We'll, we'll have you in the film. Um, 
It's one of the few Coen Brothers movies not to be edited by the brothers themselves. Tom Noble, who did the editing here. Sam Raimi makes a cameo. Uh, you don't actually see him in the film. You can see the silhouette of him when they're doing the brainstorming scene about the hula hoop. Uh, and you hear his voice, but you don't actually see his face on camera. Paul Newman and Jennifer Jason Lee will both go on to star in Road to Perdition uh, about 10 or 15 years after making this. Um, and there's a recurring theme that started with the Pudsucker. There's the character called Clarence Buzz Gunderson, who's the lift operator. And the name Gunderson is used in the next two Cohen films as well. Marge Gunderson, the police officer in Fargo, and Vaughn Bonnie Lebowski Gunderson in The Big Lebowski as well. Uh, as the first opening film of the 1994 Cannes Film Festival, and John Goodman appears as the newsreel announcer, although in the credits he's listed as Carl Munt, which was his alter ego in Barton Fink. Oh, and I think that's about everything. Yes. <laughs> well, the Hot Saga Proxy, that was, if I'm not mistaken, I think that was the only movie they've done, at least to date, that was not an independent film, I think. Like it was a studio, it was a studio funded yeah, film. The studio film. Well, it was their only studio film. I think it's like the only one where it's like rated PG, RPG, your, no, it's R12. And I think it was your PG 13. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's to like 15 and 18 or. Mm. Whatever they are, R is it rated R in the eighteen too? That is here in the states. That's seventeen. Seventeen. Ah. Okay. If you're seventeen, if you're under seventeen, you have to have an adult with you, and that's reinforced. I'm sure very consistently from east to west. Fair enough. It's, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> Can't even tell you how many rated R movies we were able to walk into at the age of 15, 16. Can I have one for Jason Takes Manhattan? Yeah, sure. Here you go. Thank you. So. Yeah. <laughs> It, it's it's a it's a uh, it's a rating and name only. Yeah, we we never tried anything like that in Britain, Frank. Just no. just not uh, just not um, cricket. I did go to see The Exorcist when I was fifteen. That's when I was ten. <laughs> I think my first forbidden viewing when I was probably about seven years old, and a few neighborhood kids and I we got together in the basement of one of their houses and watched clips from Animal House on the VHS machine. <laughs> so. Oh. I was drinking beer when I was five. Beat that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll play one up. <laughs> okay, no, no, you, you, we can't play anymore because you just won. That's how you win. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so yeah, 1994, Hot Sucker Proxy. Paul Newman, Tim Robbins, and Jennifer Jason Lee, right? Yeah, yeah, Jennifer Jason Lee. Yeah. That was your number one? Yes, that's uh, my all time favorite. What about you, Al? Okay, well, I'm going to go with my number two first, rather than oh, my number one. Oh, there we go. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> my second favourite um, Coen Brothers film is um, the 1998 classic, The Big Lebowski. We absolutely love The Big Lebowski. Um, so ultimate LA slacker, Jeff the Dude Lebowski, is mistaken for a millionaire of the same name, and he seeks revenge for a rug ruined by debt collectors, enlisting his bowling buddies to help while trying to find the millionaire's missing wife. I got that off IMDb there, so yeah. <laughs> I absolutely love The Big Lebowski. I was introduced to it when I was in college. So when I was about, I'd still be at high school if I was in America, because I was about 16. And um, a friend of mine showed it to me, and I absolutely loved it. thought it was great. It started me off drinking um, white Russians as well, of trying to find white Russians in bars. We, we don't tend to get white Russians in in bars in, in, in England as much. No, so you'd go in and you'd ask, and they wouldn't know what it is. And then they try and make and they try and make it, but a lot of the time they wouldn't have milk to put in it. So you kind of just it'd be so difficult to get a white Russian. But it was such and it's such a nice drink. It it's such a good drink to be introduced to for a film. So I think you could put cream in it, but it, we kind of have colour, vodka, and milk. Like in a lot of like, if you're in a bar at night in the in the UK, they. I mean, they probably would do more because there's more people drinking coffees and stuff like that. But okay. like when we were when we were kind of 18 and, and whatnot, trying to get milk in a bar, they'd be like, oh, we don't have any milk behind the bar. So, you know, you just mm. they'd have to go to the kitchen to get it sometimes. But it'll always be worth the wait. I know like, you know, like American shows, they all think we just drink tea, but it's not actually accurate. <laughs> that. Upstairs, downstairs and down Abbey to thank for that stereotype. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, so I've got a few facts about the film. I've only got five. I've not got as many as Stu has. Um, yeah, let's tell. So Jeff Bridges um, apparently used his own clothes for the character, which I quite like. <laughs> this is pretty cool. Um, it's John Goodman's favourite of his own films. John Goodman. What did I say? Goodman. Goodman. Yeah. There was a deleted scene, um, which I found quite interesting, was that the, the way that the dude got had money was that he was the heir to the inventor of the Rubik's Cube, which I think is a great <laughs> backstory, which I'm a bit good that they left out. <laughs> Apart from in a fantasy, the dude is never shown bowling throughout the entire film. Oh, yeah. yeah. Strange. Oh, nice yeah, because that's like the big image from the film. You see it on the, you know, the posters, the promotional materials, the bowling alley. Yeah, you never see him bowl. Um, and also, the, um, I've got a little bit of white, white Russians that the dude drinks nine white Russians throughout the film. Bloody <laughs> hell, how can do that in the night? But <laughs> I just think it's one of those films where, like, obviously, without giving any spoilers away, there's just kind of little bits in it that are just crazy, that you just, like, bits that pop up that are just mad. And it's the whole plot of the film is just, it's just crazy, it's just mad. And then the way that they get from piece to piece. I, just, I absolutely love it. I think it's such a good film. I watched it probably about two months ago, um, re-watched it, because it's it was such a long time since I'd seen it, and I really enjoyed going back. Because a lot of the times when you go back and watch something that you enjoyed when you were younger, you're a bit like, oh, it's a bit rubbish. But I went back and I loved it still. It's just oh, absolutely loved it. Oh, they did a spin-off. Well, I don't think the current's made it. it Jesus is, Rolls. Yeah. Yeah. The, the Jesus Quintana character. Um Got his own kind of film, didn't he? I've not seen it yet. No, it's on Netflix, I think. All right. Yeah. It's a spinoff of Lebowski? Yeah, it's just about Jesus, you know, Jesus in it. The, yeah. Yeah, it's a spinoff. It's a film about him. Nobody with the Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, I've not seen it. it. I don't think the ratings are that good, but it's the same. Is it John Totoro? Yeah. It's, it's him as it's him playing the same character. So I think it was only released a couple of years ago. Huh. I'll have to look that one up. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, no, I didn't know about that one. But it's him playing the role again as, as Jesus as well, so can't be that bad with him, is it? Oh, no, I'm going to find the year for it. Uh, 2019, it came out. The Jesus Rolls. Yeah, the Jesus Rolls. <laughs> the Jesus Rolls? <laughs> 4.4 4 out of 10 on IMDb. Oh, no. So... Uh, that's promising. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it might not be worth it. Might be worth a dodge. <laughs> But I assume you've seen, I assume, I assume you've seen the big, the big Lebowski. Oh yeah, yeah. If I hadn't, it would have been very undude of me <laughs> to steal one of John Goodman's <laughs> lines from the movie. You yeah. were doing a current show if you yeah. hadn't seen the Big Lebowski. <laughs> so we got Hudsucko, we got the Big Lebowski, and what's your other favorite, Stu? Uh, so yeah, number two, well maybe a joint number one, really. Yeah. Uh, raising Arizona. <laughs> this, is, this is the one that we're talking about today that I have not yet seen. So raising Arizona is this is going to be green pastures for me. So take it away. It's all you. I've not seen it either. What? The f- <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah, I've not seen it. I don't, I don't think, think I've seen it. Thank you very much. Oh well. <laughs> Spoiler alert already. Then I guess. Uh, I don't think I should talk about it now. So what happens is Bruce Willis is a doctor at the start of the film and yeah. he gets shot. And then he sees this little kid who sees dead people. Oh, no, wait, that's something else. That sounds like the other film he was in, Die Hard. That's it, Die Hard, yeah. <laughs> Yippee guy, eh? <laughs> no, so it's the, um, <laughs> it's the story of Ed, or Ed Wiener, with uh, Holly Hunter. She plays a police officer who falls for a repeat store robber, High or H.I. Madonna, Nicolas Cage. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, she falls for him while she's taking his mug shots all the time. He's he's in and out of jail like all the time, basically. Um, but their marriage depends on settling down with a child. Um, here comes the spoiler alert. I can't really talk about it because none of you have seen it. Just don't give spoilers. Well, so she wants a kid. And then, right. They call it Arizona. No. Right. So here's a premise on IMDb. I know where you're going with this. It's cool. Yeah. Here's your spoiler alert. (laughs) So she can't have kids. Yeah. Um, 
in town there's this really rich businessman called Nathan Arizona and he's his missus has just had five ah okay. quintuplets now, there's, a, there's a line in the in the papers that apparently they go with uh oh we've, we've got more than we can handle or more than we know what to do with or something like that she reads that in the paper goes see they've got more than they need so go and get me one so she gets Nicolas Cage to go and nick one out the window all right out the window Oh, he has to climb the ladder. oh, okay. <laughs> so he goes in the window and then there's five. He didn't know which one to pick and they're all crawling around everywhere. And you have to watch it. There's <laughs> that going on. So he's obviously like giving my kid back. He gets all the coppers involved. They're all useless. And then uh, he hires this bounty hunter played by Tex Cobb. And then you've got two ex-convicts that come into play as well. John Goodman's one of them, obviously. She's in every one of the bloody films, isn't he? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, they all get mixed up in it as well. And just honestly, just hurry up and watch it, both all of right. these. We've got it on Netflix over here, so you must have, have it on Netflix over there. Yeah. I'll watch that then. We can watch it later. We'll watch it later. <laughs> I think the only one that we have on Netflix over here right now is The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, but it was made for Netflix, so it makes sense. Oh, we got that too. Yeah. You need to get raised in Arizona, Frank. I can't believe it. <laughs> when you watched it, we only posters on your wall up here at all. Um, so there's some trivia. I don't know if I should do this either. Yeah, go on. It's always good to learn. But it's not about the film. It's kind of behind the scenes. So the quintuplets were played by 15 babies in total. <laughs> what? <laughs> Holy <laughs> sugar plums. What? 15? 15 played five. I think there's like certain laws that can only film for so long, isn't it? So mm. every time there's a baby in a film or a TV show, they always get like twins to play it. Like um, Ben in Friends. Yeah, That's he's played by two kids. Anyway, yeah. So apparently, one of the babies was fired during production. Wait, what? Because he learned how to walk. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So it got to the point where his mum, because obviously all the mums were on set as well, but his mum would put the kid's shoes on the wrong feet so he wouldn't know how to walk properly. But they found out this baby could walk, and because they were all crawling on set, the baby got fired. (laughs) How old were you when you were fired from your first job? Actually, I was um, one because I learned how to walk. Uh, yeah. So according to Ethan Cohen as well, Nicolas Cage was crazy about his Woody Woodpecker haircut that you don't know about. Um, but every time he gets into some sort of like stress or danger, the bigger his hair gets on the, on the set as well. The role of Edwina was specifically written for Holly Hunter. I think that's just something to do with like she didn't get a part in their previous film or she wasn't in their first one, Blood Simple. Um, so they wrote this role especially for her. H.I.'s work uniform logo shows the work. I, actually, I won't say that because you haven't seen it. It'd be a nice little surprise for you. But take take note of his little badge. When he gets his job up, when he gets out of jail, just have a look at the little name tag on the badge <coughs> of the, uh, the company he's working for. Because you might like what you say. Uh, Raising Arizona is the film Matthew McConaughey has watched the most times, whereas my co-host Al and Frank have watched it Zero times. Ouch. <laughs> uh, Kevin Costner auditioned for the role of H.I. Madonna three times before eventually getting the uh, role to Nicolas Cage instead. Uh, Kevin Costner got his own back by playing Robin Hood in Field of Dreams. There's a punchline in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> the lullaby that Ed sings to one of the uh, Nathan Jr. is the song Down in the Willow Garden about a man who wants to murder his fiance. Don't know what that's about. <laughs> uh, and the and the final final uh, quote, well, trivia part, I should say. Uh, according to Sam McMurray, who had something to do with this film, uh, one day he and Nicolas Cage went out to eat at a diner and there was an excited female fan that came over to the table who wasn't too sure if she could actually see Nicolas Cage. <laughs> she finally got convinced it was him and she asked him for an autograph. So Nicolas Cage wrote on a cocktail napkin. This is what he wrote. Tomorrow you will die, Nicholas Cage. <laughs> oh. Good old uh, Nicholas Cage. Um, so, yeah, I mean, what a film is. They did Blood Simple, which was their first one, which was pretty dark. And then they kind of did this as like a polar opposite and made all the characters likable as uh, compared to the horrible people in, in the previous. Mm. There's a few good cameos in the uh, film that I won't reveal because I uh, don't want to ruin it. Like, don't give it away. Um, but yeah, it, for those that have seen it, it's, well, you know what I mean, it's great. 
And for those who haven't seen it, <laughs> get your finger out, lads. Come on. <laughs> and that's all I have to say about that. You should have done that in the Forrest Gump voice. And that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> well, now I'm feeling sore ashamed for not having seen this one yet. If you hate it, then I have to stop listening to you. <laughs> oh. Now, <laughs> uh, 87, I think the film came out, 1987. Um, and that's that's all I have. Al? Yeah. Your next one? Oh, sorry, Frank, that's your line. <laughs> Al, your next one? <laughs> <laughs> so, my favourite Coen Brothers film is, it's, it's in my top 10 <clears throat> favourite films of all time out of any film I've seen, and it's No Country for Old Men. Never seen it. Which... I'm sorry, flag on the play. I've seen seen it. I've I've seen them all, haven't I? Come on. Okay, I I was just about to jump through the screen. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So again, from IMDb, violence and mayhem ensue after a hunter stumbles upon a drug deal gone wrong and more than $2 million in cash near Rio Grande. Now... I absolutely love this film. The first time I saw it, I instantly went out and bought the book uh, by um, Cormac McCarthy and read it. And it's one of those that the book is fantastic. The film is fantastic. There's no, I don't prefer one or the other. I think they're both absolutely amazing. Well, obviously it's one story, but the, the film sticks religiously to the book. I find, I think it's so, it's such a good adaption um, I absolutely adore this film and all the performances in it, the acting, the everything in it is absolutely yeah, fantastic. I cannot stress how much I love this no, film. There's no like weak link in the film. No, they're all like all on top form. So, and I think I probably I watch this film every year. I always go back to it if I see it on a streaming site, um, on Sky, on TV. I'll always watch it because it's just so good. And I think it's like once you've seen it as well, like a few times, if if it was in the middle of the film and it was on TV and I just happened to turn over the TV channel and it was on, I would watch the second half of the film because it's that good that I know what happens at the start mm. and I know I'm going to enjoy the last bit of the, the last half of the film. It's just so good. But um, I've got a few things, uh, a few facts from it. Um, the fake blood was a major cost on the film and it cost $800 a gallon for the fake blood. Get serious. Well, which is, price is bad. Yeah, which is insane. $800 a gallon. Um, the case holding the money was the same case that was used in the film Fargo. Huh. Ah. So yeah, I thought that was quite good. The one he buries in the snow? Yeah. Hmm. Uh, when Josh Brolin's character crosses the border into Mexico, it is the first time ever in a Coen Brothers film that a character has left the USA. Good fact, that, isn't it? Um, And finally, the body count is 22. Not quite as good, but I thought that was quite good. It's a bit high, isn't it? 22? 22. Really? 22, the body count. Yeah. But there's a lot that start, isn't there, that, that get killed in the drug deal. Oh, that's true, too. Oh, yeah. few at the start. Has that included them in the 22? Yeah, that would be included in the 22. But okay. it's just like Javier Bardem in it is just the scene, obviously without giving any spoilers away, the, the scene where he's at the, the gas station yeah. and he's doing the, the, the coin toss is just such a good scene. It's so... And I read somewhere as well, um, which I didn't put down in my facts, that they have all there was some psychologists that had watched the films and they said that his portrayal of a um of like a psychopath is the most real um, portrayal of a psychopath in any film they said that like his performance is so realistic that it's like he is a psychopath <laughs> like Javier Bardem is actually a psychopath but he's he's fantastic and the haircut it's just amazing. So I want the haircut. <laughs> If you take a look at the the expression on his face, this is the beginning of the film, so kind of sort of not really spoiler, but when he's got the he's he's got the was it the sheriff's deputy when he's on the ground, yes. he's, he's strangling. You, you just see this look of total pleasure on his face. It's yeah. so like you said, sociopathic. It's, it's how do you how does he get into that? How does he get into that role 
and just he's so convincing mm. and you know and it's not like he's he's not the the biggest star in that film you've got josh brolin you've got tommy lee jones you've got woody harrelson there's some big names in there but he's the one that comes out really as the as the standout performance yeah, he's the one that steals the show yeah well he's the one who got the oscar yeah yeah of course yeah but yeah absolutely amazing film I got a question for you, well, for both of you, about uh, No Country for Old Men is there was a lot of controversy. I remember, not controversy, but I remember there was a lot of debate when it first came out. People either loved the ending or they hated the ending. So spoiler as far as the as far as the ending goes, but Tommy Lee Jones talking about the nightmare that he has. And then he says, and then I wake up and then the screen goes black and then the end credits begin. There are people who totally they trash talked that whole thing they said it was anticlimactic and that it just diffused the bomb that was being built up over the film and then other people were saying it was just a good dramatic bang kind of a moment i like i really enjoyed it because i think the whole film is and there's a lot of anticlimactic moments in it like when obviously spoiler again when josh brolin's character dies you don't see him die you just hear that he's died you don't see him get shot by those by the people that are robbing him. Don't we only see him in the background, like by a swimming pool or something? Yeah. So he's just he's been killed. So that's quite anticlimactic. And then obviously the bit, even the bit when um Javier Bardem at the end goes to see his wife and you don't know what happens there. And then he kind of just goes off. I mean, he gets hit by a car, doesn't he? And then he he get he just goes off. But so I that, that bit of the end with like Tommy Jones. Party, he yeah. rides off on the kid's bike. No, he doesn't take the kid's bike, he just takes his shirt. Awesome. And then the bit of Leona, I love the bit of with Tommy Lee Jones at the end. I think it's so it's such a beautiful, a, a beautiful ending because he just talks about you know he talks about his father and stuff like that and about his dream and I just think I think it's a great ending. I I just I don't know any other way that it could have ended because it doesn't end well for any character. His little monologue at the end there, I think it's a really beautiful ending. I think it's. I don't think I can't see how else they would have ended it. I think the people who are saying that they wanted the ending, that they didn't like the ending, were saying that they were wanting it to be more action packed. They wanted to have like one final big explosive moment. But yeah. when it comes to that, I think a lot of times it's more effective, especially after you've just seen all of this bloody mayhem. If you end on a note of total implosion rather than explosion, I think that that really serves a story a lot more effectively. It just yeah, ends more in a yeah. like, okay, quiet moments, show's over, lights up, walk yeah. out, and okay, what are you taking away from everything that he just said, given yeah. everything you just saw? Yeah, because it's, hmm. yeah, I, I just I, I just think it's, it, it ends really well. I, I, I think maybe people are thinking they'd like to see Tommy Lee Jones kill Javier Bardem's character at the end in a big shootout, which just, wouldn't yeah. work it just wouldn't because yeah. his character isn't really you know his character isn't really like that throughout the film so it'd be silly to have him in a big shootout right at the end or anything like that so but yeah just love it love the whole film start to finish I think it's a common thing too with the Coen brothers is that a lot of their movies do end with that kind of a moment, not necessarily a monologue, but they have a close-up of if not the main character then a significant character they go yeah. off the screen goes all black and then end credits roll. They, they've done that a few times. And so I don't know if that's just one of the, just one of the storytelling strategies that they use that they rely on. Mm. Yes. They kind of like just finish off like, see you then. Yeah. Bye. You don't need a big showcase ending for if, if the story's if the story's that good, then why do you need a big showcase ending? It's such a good story throughout the whole thing. That, that you don't need that. I think that sometimes some audiences and they just want everything to be served up in a platter. Like they don't, yeah. they don't want to be made to think, you know what I mean? Yeah. They want the visual spectacle. They don't want to walk away with anything ambiguous or anything. They, they want everything all tied up, you know, a neat little package, all questions answered. And I don't know, life's not like that. So I think that when movies sometimes do that kind of non-closure, that kind of non-resolution, uh, to me, it speaks volumes. I love the ending of uh, Country for Old Men. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Well, so um, what have you picked then, Frank? Uh, okay, so both of my picks, I have to admit, are more recent ones. 
I have trouble deciding which one goes in number one, number two. So I'm just going to flip the coin, if you will. And I'm going to say that my number two is Inside Lewin Davis. I absolutely adore this movie. I don't know what it is about this movie that I love. I don't think that it's quite as thought-provoking. I don't want to say that it doesn't have as much substance, but I don't think there's as much depth to it. And I'm not saying that that's that's a fault of the film. I think that was the intent behind it. I don't know. It, it didn't leave you with a lot of thoughts, but basically, I'll read off of IMDb here. A week in the life of a young singer as he navigates the Greenwich Village folk scene of 1961. There's a lot more to it than that, of course, but that's what they have. There. So, well, first of all, I think one of the things I love about it is the cast. I love Carrie Mulligan. Yeah, yeah. Oscar Isaac, he's my man crush. And I absolutely love John Goodman. He's back in. You know, he's He's got a cameo. It's, it's a great cast, number one. And it's very loosely, not really, kind of sort of not really based on a true story, a real life folk, a real life folk singer. But basically, it's IMDb is right. It's a depiction of a series of events in the life of this guy who's not very likable. He's talented, but he's got a lot of inner demons. He just doesn't know how to deal with them. So rather than trying to cope, he just lashes out at the world and just ends up being a total jerkwad, basically. Um, so a couple of things I have about the about Inside Lewin Davis, as far as any of the fun facts go. Uh, first of all, what I have is that Oscar Isaac, he is actually trained at Juilliard. So he's trained in the performing, you know, singing. And he was cast as Lewin Davis after impressing the filmmakers with his dramatic readings and his musical skills. And the executive music producer of the film, T-Bone Burnett, he uh, he also produced for Elton John, Tony Bennett, and Ray Orbison. He says that Oscar Isaac, quote, can play and sing as well as anybody I work with, end quote. So, you know, for T-Bone to say he's just as good as anybody I've worked with, I don't know, that's pretty, that's pretty impressive. Yeah. I also have that the Coen brothers, they brought in British musician Marcus Mumford, Oh yeah, from Mumford and Sons. Mumford and Sons. They asked him to contribute and to play on the on the tracks and the film songs. They were performed live while they were actually shooting the film, kind of like what they did with the movie version of Les Mis. Only this one worked out much better. The, the movie, the songs were not played in the movie on playback. The Coens wanted the music and the film to have sort of this documentary-like feel. So all of the performances were recorded live, kind of like Idina Menzel and Rent when she was singing "Over the Moon." That one too. Um, that month, Marcus Mumford, he's married to Carrie Mulligan. Is he? Yeah. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. I read that. I read that, that he's her real life husband. And she felt self-conscious singing next to Justin Timberlake when they were singing 500 Falls at the beginning. I heard that, yeah. And the other, oh, the other thing I have here uh, for Inside Lewin Davis is that the movie begins and ends at Greenwich Village's the Gaslight Club, and he is performing Hang Me, Oh, Hang Me, which was an old favorite of folk music icon Dave Van Ronk, who is the inspiration for the film. He wrote his memoir called The Mayor of McDougal Street. So the Coen brothers read this book and they figured, you know, something, let's make a movie of this. They fictionalized practically 95% of it. They changed the name and the whole thing. And you take a look at the ending credits and it does say in that little blurb they have to have at the end, this is this film is a work of fiction. All characters, events portrayed are fictitious. So it's not his life story, but there's a lot of there's there's a there's a hell of a lot of parallels between between Van Rock's story and what happens to Lewin Davis as far as his interactions with, with Grossman at the end in the club in Chicago, story elements like that. Yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, no, Inside Lewin Davis came out in 2013. It didn't get any Oscar nominations. I can understand why at that point they were coming off of a hot streak with No Country for Old Men, Burn After Reading, A Serious Man. So I think at that point, every once in a while, the Academy will say, okay, been there, done that. So yeah. I don't know if it has to do with the timing as much as anything else. I think if Inside Lewin Davis had come out at a different time, maybe come Oscar season, it would have done better. But not that the Oscar necessarily means that now the movie is worth something. Yeah. Hmm. It doesn't hurt with publicity. So, so that's Inside Lewin Davis, Oscar Isaac. He was, not, he was Golden Globe nominated, but he didn't make the Oscar cut. And then the other Coen Brothers film that I have, another one of my favorites, A Serious Man. 
This came out in 2009. You seen this one? I've not seen that one. I've seen it once, um, but I definitely need to watch it again. You do. I'll make a deal with you. I'll watch Raising Arizona, you watch Serious Man, and then we'll have a meeting of the minds again. Yeah, fair. <laughs> a Serious Man, that came out in 2009. That one was a Best Picture nominee, and oh. it is really the best way I think it can be described as theater of the absurd. It is so deadpan, which is the Coen Brothers style for everything being so absurd, but deadpan. The movie begins in Eastern Europe, at turn of the century, and we're in some village and it's the middle of the night. And there's this guy who is, he's bringing his horse and his cot home and he shows up at home. He walks in, he greets his wife, Dora. She greets him and he says, oh, you're not going to believe it. The wheel fell off my cot earlier, but someone came along. Thankfully, they were able to help me. We talked. It turns out, you know, the guy, he mentions the guy's name. She looks at him in total astonishment and horror. And she says, say his name again. He says the name and she says, God has cursed us. And he says, what are you talking about? And she says, he died three years ago of typhus. So it's a sort of, you think you're watching this supernatural horror movie, you know, but because then there's a knocking at the door and he says, uh, Dora, I invited him over for soup and to warm himself up. And so they're both looking at the door in dread. I don't want to say anything beyond that, but Ethan and Joel Cohen, they scoured the books. They said they really wanted to have a Yiddish folktale to open up a serious man. And they could not find one that they liked. So they decided, you know what, let's just write one ourselves. So that's what they did with this. <laughs> but my favorite thing of all of this is the fact that when they were asked during the promotional tour for the film, what's that prologue supposed to mean? What's the relevance to the rest of the movie? They said, oh, they said, no. <laughs> they said, yeah, no, it doesn't mean anything. No relevant to the rest of the movie. We just wanted to have a Yiddish folktale open up the movie. They do this a lot, don't they? They always try and read into things that are never there in, in current films. Because yeah, even when even uh, Richard Kynes <laughs> is in the movie, Richard Kynes, he was offering during the promotional tours his own thoughts about his character and you know what happens in the story. Oh, I think what the Coen brothers were trying to say was this or that or the other thing. And when they were asked, so what did you think about Richard Kynes' comments? They just sort of, yeah, they sort of shrugged their shoulders and said, okay. <laughs> so they obviously have thoughts that they're just not telling. But that's just a prologue. The premise of a serious man is that you have this guy, Larry, who is a physics professor in Minnesota. Fast forward to 1967. And it's really kind of like inside Lewin Davis, it's a week in the life of this guy who is, he's indecisive, he's wishy-washy, he's got no, he's really got no gumption to do much of anything. He's not a bad guy, but there's nothing particularly remarkable about him either. He's just living his daily life. He's got a wife, he's got a son and a daughter. The son is in Hebrew school, he's preparing for his bar mitzvah. The daughter, all she wants to do is wash her hair. Like that's all she talks about is washing her hair throughout the entire movie. The wife, and this is not a spoiler, it's in like in the first 15 minutes, the wife says to him when he comes home from work, she says, I want a divorce, I'm having an affair. And he says, with who? And she tells him, and the whole scene, that whole scene is just so typical of the Coens. I just keep using this word deadpan, but it's just so absurd. It's like you don't know whether to laugh at his stupidity or cry with him for his despair. It's just <laughs> in your head. It's like, how are we supposed to be reacting to this? And the son, like I said, he's studying for his bar mitzvah. He couldn't care less about it. All he cares about is where he can score his next drug deal. And if this sounds really absurd, if this sounds like there's absolutely no plot, then I say very perceptive. <laughs> that's, that's a serious man. So he's got this student who failed his midterm. And so the student says, I don't want to lose my scholarships. You know, he offers him this envelope full of money. All of these seemingly irrelevant little stories that's, you know, that make up this guy's life, they all point to the one deep philosophical question of where are the answers in life? And that's really what they were trying to go for. According to what little nuggets they put out there, it's like a snowflake on top of Mount Everest, the amount that they actually put out there, but what they have going on in their minds. But what they said was they fashioned this whole thing after their own upbringing. They said that the neighborhood in the movie resembled their own. They said that they resembled the son and the daughter. Their father was a professor at a university. And they really were looking to not necessarily recreate their childhoods, but poke fun at them through all the absurdities of, of daily life. I always say there are two kinds of movies, those you can fold laundry by and those you can't. This one, you have to give it your full undivided attention.
And I do have here a quote that Ethan Cohen offered to Esquire in 2009. He said, with a serious man for a long time, we wanted to make a short film about a bar mitzvah boy who goes to see an aged rabbi. We based the rabbi on one we knew when we were growing up, a sage, a Yoda, who didn't say much, but had great charisma. And then Michael Stahlberg says of the Cohen brothers, he says this in one of the bonus features in the DVD, bonus feature is called Becoming Serious. He said, they're smart, gentle, cerebral, and quite zen on the set as well. They seem to not just play off each other well, but complement each other in terms of their thoughts about what things are. And as they treat each other with respect, they treat their fellow workers with respect, and you can't ask for much more than that, end quote. Which is funny to me because Julianne Moore says in a bonus feature on the Big Lebowski DVD that they were very, she found them very lively and very personable, very affable. And then here is Michael Stahlberg saying they were always in their zen moments. So... I don't know. I mean, the movies were made 10 years apart from each other. So maybe they were just in different places in their lives. Or maybe it's just a matter of personal perspective. I really can't say too much more about a serious man without giving too much away, but it is a series of haphazard events that just don't seem to fit together until all of a sudden it's like, oh, wait a minute, there is something cohesive here actually happening. And then, of course, they yank the cop it up from underneath you at the very end as well. A little, couple, a couple of twists here and there that I dare not reveal. I don't even know if I've seen it, you know. <laughs> you might be else. One of the best things about the movie, and this is personal opinion, of course, is the soundtrack, because it is chock full of Jefferson Airplane. They play Somebody to Love over the opening and the end credits. They got Today. They got, uh, it's, it's just, it, it's, it's great slick. They got great music. Yeah. Mm. And the, and the thing of it is, is that the lyrics to Somebody to Love completely and totally fit the movie thematically. When the truth is found to be lies and all the joy within you dies, this guy is on this search for the meaning of life and he just can't find it. And it just seems like life just keeps spitting him in the face. Every time he thinks he has the answer, something really awkward will happen. And it's like, okay, back to the drawing board. Definitely going to have to watch it now. Yeah. yeah. It's it's not really anything that I've heard about before. So it's, but it's funny, like looking over some of the um, Coen Brothers stuff and there's so many films that I think, oh God, I don't even, I've not even heard that one before, you know? So it's, it's nice to kind of like, because any film that I've watched of theirs, I've loved. So I think I'd really need to go back and watch pretty much all of their back catalogue now. I just, (laughs) See, this is what I'm thinking to myself. Why the hell is there an ocean between us? Because I would say, let's have a weekend Coen Brothers marathon. Yeah. Oh, that would be good. Okay, so let's pivot towards the trivia section. We all prepared some questions for each other here. Some of them about the movies themselves. Some of them about the Coen Brothers in general. And Stu, I believe that you have prepared actually a little quiz for Al and me having to do with the taglines from the films. I have, yeah. I mean, I know I did come up with the title of the um, name of the episode. I'm not managed to come up with a title for this quiz, though. But it's basically, I'm going to read you out 10 characters from pretty much all of their films, and you just tell me uh, which film the character's from. So you could call it, What Characters This Film From? <laughs> Ingenious. Right there. That's a t-shirt right there. Okay, so the first one then. Do we just shout out our answer? Pretty much, yeah. Okay. It's a UK versus USA. Oh, I guess that means game on. (laughs) Come on, win. Here's the answers. (laughs) I'm not looking. Right, so the first one then. Big Dan Teague. Fargo. Burn after reading. There's Oprah for where art thou? Ah, of course. Yeah. Big Dan Teague, I think it was John Goodman, wasn't it? Maybe. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> um, Carson Wells. Oh, um, I just saw this one too. Carson Wells. Yeah. <laughs> it's not No Country for Old Men, is it? It certainly is. Yes! <laughs> Big 
Ah, uh, right. You ready? This, this one's an easy one, so you should know this one. Marge Gunderson. Oh, oh, um, oh uh, uh, Fargo. One one. Ah. One one. Yeah. Uh, Larry Gopnik. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Serious man. Yeah. <laughs> Two one. <laughs> Rex Rexroth. Rex Rexroth. Yeah. Is that Hail Caesar? No. Yeah. Is it? Um, Buster Scruggs. Uh, intolerable cruelty. <sighs> I wasn't too keen on that one, to be honest. It was okay. That's my weak link of all their films. Mm. I, I didn't say. hate it. I didn't love it. I don't need to see it again. Man, I mean, I watched it because it was them. Yeah. And I was just like, oh, okay. Okay, next. Jesus Quintana. Big Lebowski. Yes. <laughs> we did mention him earlier as well. Yeah. That's two two. Uh, Charlie Meadows. Um The Terminal. No. Raising Arizona. No. Barton Fink. Oh. Uh, which film was the character Werner in? Verna. I'm gonna go raising Arizona. Okay. That means it's not. <laughs> I'll go with uh Hudsucker. Miller's Crossing. Uh, Marsha Gay Harden. <sighs> Chad Feldheimer. <laughs> Come on, guys. <laughs> uh, you sure you've seen these films? <laughs> Yeah. Okay, that was Burn After Reading. Oh, that was Burn After Reading. No. Uh, Brad Pitt's character there. <laughs> um, two more. Deanna Moran. <laughs> that one, um, True Grit. No. no. Oh, I mean, maybe. Don't know. Don't know. No, that was Hail Caesar. All right, this is the one to win it then. 2 2. We'll have to do a tiebreaker here. Um, Amy Archer. Oh, um, uh, I'll bet my Pulitzer Prize on it. <laughs> oh, dear. Well, it's not, it's not Noah's Crossing, is it? No. Just the Hudsucker. Oh, Jennifer Jason Lee. Uh, so it's 2-2. Uh, okay, quick tie break. Uh, okay, I've got one. Which film would you find Jerry Lundegaard? That would be Fargo, right? USA wins. Oh, well done, Frank. I've not seen Fargo for years. I can't oh, remember the names of the characters. Or just funny looking, you know, funny looking. Was he funny looking apart from that? <laughs> that? That was my first Coen Brothers movie, was Fargo. Yeah, same. Yeah, I think mine come as well. On in, Ma- come on in, Marty, I'll make you some eggs. <laughs> my painting's going on a three-cent stamp. <laughs> All right, so I do have some questions for the two of you as well based on the movies that you selected as your picks. How do you want to do this? Should we alternate? Yeah, alternate, yeah. Alternate. All right, sounds good. How about you first this time, Al? Okay. All right. We've got here a question for you from the Big Lebowski. Jeff Bridges plays the dude. What is the dude's real name? Uh, it's Jeffrey. Um, oh, God. I'll give it to you. I can't remember his last name. Lebowski. Oh! <laughs> How can you not get that? <laughs> I'm trying so hard to be nice. I was trying so hard. I thought that was fairly obvious, though. <laughs> I thought you were joking. Cut that out. Oh, leave that in. Leave that in. <laughs> oh, don't worry, it's staying in. It's so obvious, I don't know why I didn't say it. The whole thing's about them getting to the same yeah. thing. <laughs> Jeez. Oh. I remember the hard bit, Jeff. <laughs> Well, no, because they're both called Jeffrey as well. Well, I, I know, but it's the big, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> the big Jeffrey. <laughs> okay, Stu, 
is where I have to be a total phony. And I got some raising Arizona questions here for you. The one I haven't. Like is where's it set? Arizona. It's not actually. Hey, what state? Yeah. Um, what convenience store does HI like to rob? The name of the shop. Name the name of the shop. Oh my God. Come on. Yes, Lebowski's name. It's I called the Arizona. <laughs> um, Nappies are us or diapers are us. <laughs> the short stop. Yep. <laughs> okay. Uh, next big Lebowski question. In the opening scene, the dude is writing a check for 89 cents. What is he buying? Milk. Yeah. Half and half cream. Yeah. Same thing. <laughs> and okay back to raising arizona what is the name of the bounty hunter wait um dog <laughs> leonard smalls <laughs> leonard smalls yeah because his name oh come on you're losing stories you know lenny smalls as well <laughs> the name of the dude <laughs> Okay, the last Lebowski question. When the dude is dreaming, what is the name of the movie starring Maude and himself? Oh, you ain't getting that. I'm not sure, so I'm just going to say Maude and me. <laughs> Maude and me. <laughs> Got a balls. Ah, oh, yeah. And your next Raising Arizona question. What is the real name of H.I.? Uh... Hal? Herbert. Yes. Herbert. I can't believe that. He <laughs> <laughs> calls him HR in the film. I don't remember him saying his name. <laughs> Probably the wedding part, actually. Yeah. The conversations that uh, we've had, actually, I swear to God, this was not planned, but I, you actually, Al, Al, you already answered two of the three questions I have for No Country for Old Men. So uh, I don't know if yeah. I should. <laughs> something uh honest, i'll probably forget if i forgot what um lebowski as his last name i'll probably forget the others well the first one i have is on what game of chance does the clark's life depend oh a coin snakes toss and ladders. snakes and ladders a coin toss oh you mentioned snakes and ladders in one of your recent episodes i wanted to ask you that too is that the same thing that we call shoots and ladders yeah, yeah. okay I, I figured it was but okay but we were we were made uh, snakes on a plane over here as well. <laughs> Shoots on a plane. <laughs> Shoots on a jet. <laughs> so the next question is for Hudsucker Proxy. Name the city and state where Norval Bands went to college. Uh, pass. <laughs> it's not called Pass, no. Boston, Massachusetts. <laughs> Muncie, Indiana. Oh, come on, a Muncie girl. You're a Muncie girl. Ah! I don't need answers. <laughs> oh my. Okay. Al, who wrote the novel Old Country for Old Men? Um, Cormac McCarthy. Well, yeah. so you would believe that Cormac <laughs> McCarthy wrote. It was actually by um, J.K. JK Rowling. Rowling. Yeah, Harry Potter and the Country for Old Men. It was the first draft of the Philosopher's Stone. Are you able to read each other's minds? Because that was just eerily perfect. Yeah, it was, wasn't it? <laughs> we usually tend to um, finish each other's uh, sandwiches. Oh, very well. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, Hudsucker Proxy. When Norval works in the mailroom, he is given an important letter to deliver to Sid Musburger. According to the ancient mail sorter, they hate this color letter upstairs. They hate them. What color is the letter? Red. Blue. Blue. <laughs> I've never seen the kind of films. I don't even know who they are. I only found out about them today. <laughs> and last one. Uh, no country for old men. In what state does it take place? Um, shush. Um, oh, gosh. Uh, I think I know, actually. I, I'm going to say Texas, but I think that's wrong. It is wrong, isn't it? Never, 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 never ever doubt yourself. It is Texas. 
Yeah, all right. Yeah, he crosses the border into Mexico. He comes out of the USA to Mexico. Yeah, I know. Where else is it going to be then? Well, I don't know. I don't know if there's other crossing points. Yeah, yeah, New York, actually. <laughs> it's not. No, it crosses to Denmark. Everyone knows that. Kyle and Frank, see if I can get one right. Spell Hudsucker? Yeah, no problem. <laughs> okay. Hudsucker Proxy yeah. came out in what year? 1994. You got it. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's a winner. It's like the Oprah Winfrey show. Everyone goes on the prize. So there you go. <laughs> You know, for kids. <laughs> so, Stu and Al, this has been fantastic, and I hope to God we can do this again. Thank you for taking the time out of your day, especially with the five-hour time difference between us. So, is there anything else that we forgot to mention or anything you want to say about yourselves again, the show? Remind people how to get in contact with you. So, if you want to get in contact with us, uh, we are on Twitter and Instagram at Stu and Al Pod. Uh, you can find the Stu and Al Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, we just want to say uh, thanks for having us on, Frank. It's been, yeah. a, it's been a real pleasure. Um, we're both big fans of the Kind Brothers. You wouldn't know it from the quiz, <laughs> but we really are uh, big fans of their films. So it's been a real honour to be on for this uh, special episode. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. Well, thank you. It's been mine as well. This has been a long time in the making, so I'm thrilled that it finally happened. Glad we were able to make it work. Yeah, and uh, if you ever like want us back on in the future, then uh, give us a shout. Well, be careful what you wish for because the way I'm feeling right now, I'm about to say, so how about next week? So, <laughs> <laughs> All right. I just want to be sure to leave time to acknowledge the trivia portion for all of you listeners out there. We also have the poll results from the social media, and that has to do with our individual pairings of Coen Brothers films. The question asked, which pair of films make up your Coen Brothers marathon? And the pairings that were offered as options were Al's, Stu's, and my own. Sorry to say that my pairing did not get any votes, however, <laughs> it looks like No Country for Old Men and The Big Lebowski. Al, your pair, looks like you got the most number of votes. On Twitter, at least, 43%. Stu, your pair got 14% of the votes. And I added in an option D, How Do I Choose? And 43% of the vote went to that one as well. And over on Facebook, we have Krista C., who says, Raising Arizona and The Big Lebowski, so she mixed and matched, which is great. Mary C. says, Can you believe I haven't seen The Big Lebowski? I need to rectify that. I think Al would agree with you there. <laughs> and Mike W. says, Fago is my favorite and The Big Lebowski. So thank you all for your contributions. The last full episode we had was on two Thanksgiving-themed films, Home for the Holidays with Robert Downey Jr. and Pieces of April with Katie Holmes. And the trivia question last time asked you about superhero movies. Robert Downey Jr., he, of course, stars as Iron Man in the Marvel Universe. And the question that was asked of you was, Katie Holmes also has superhero street cred. What franchise does she star in? And the correct answer is... Batman Begins. She plays Rachel Dawes in Batman Begins, and getting the answer right is one of the biggest Batman fans I know, Davey A. from the podcast I'd Give That 10 Mints. So, Davey, congratulations. Meme coming your way. We also have this week's new trivia question, and that is this. Coen Brothers film mainstay Francis McDormand just won an Academy Award this year, 2021, not for a Coen Brothers film, but for a film directed by Chloe Zhao, who also won Best Director. Name the film. Send your answers on over. You can email me at frankmendoza at yahoo.com. You can, of course, go to the Facebook group Silver Screeners, Twitter at filmbuff1974, or Instagram at frankmendoza1974. So that just about does it for this episode, The Cohen Chronicles. I want to thank everybody for listening. Stu and Al, thank you once more for joining me today. This has been fantastic. Be sure to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. And if you could take just a minute to give Silver Screeners a rating on whatever podcast platform you use, that would be very much appreciated. That kind of thing does help with algorithms and boosting visibilities of shows like this. Of course, if you'd like to leave a review as well, I would not complain. I am always looking for honest feedback, so whatever it is that you have to say, I am all ears. Thank you once again, everybody, for joining. Until next time, keep on screening, and I will leave you with one of the highlights of this Zoom with Stu and Al. Oh, Frank, do the line. We've not heard you do the line. The Lauren McCall.
Oh, yeah. Well, the Coen brothers have been making movies for over 40 years now, so even if you have not seen their film debut, Blood Simple, which was made in 1984, just remember what Lauren Bacall always says. It's not an old movie if you haven't seen it. Hey! <laughs> That's an off the bucket list. Hear Frank say it live. 